This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the MDT Podcast. I'm Joe Preston. And I am Ian Wilkinson. And this week, we're going to focus on the topic of urinary incontinence and particularly the non-pharmacological management of urinary incontinence. Which is good because it often doesn't work anyway. And it's really common, isn't it? Yeah, really So common. up to about 50% of women will be incontinent at some time during their life. So not just in old age. Not just in old age, exactly. And for men, urinary tract symptoms and difficulty passing urine are also really, really common. But much of the research is focusing on continence and incontinence in women. Things we're not going to look at this week, we are not going to look at urinary tract infections. I think that could be a whole episode by itself. We're not going to look in depth at the drug treatments for continence, other than to say that it is useful for some people who are well chosen. And we will highlight that as we go through, but we're not going to focus on the, the individual medicines and, and yeah. how they're used. Yeah, and medications really are just one aspect of the treatment mm. for one specific type of urinary incontinence. By far, the treatment is largely non-medication-based. Yeah. So it's really, it's, it's another thing, where, which is why we've chosen it. It's a really MDT approach to yep. recognising this issue and developing management plans yep. between, between everybody. The MDT Podcast. So we've had some feedback on the episode two, which was on delirium. The first bit is from Amanda Johnson, who says he's a great free online podcast for those supporting older adults. And then from David Oliver, who is the current president of the British Geriatric Society, uh, saying, can he heartily recommend everybody to the resources on the MDT podcast? Which is nice. Which is really good. Really yeah. Nice. Dr. Amy, or Mrs. AP, uh, has said that she loved hearing the phrase betwixt and between used on a podcast, which is one of Ian's favourite phrases. It's one of my favourite phrases, yeah. Also, my mum gave us some feedback. She's she not on Twitter. No. <laughs> Um, but uh, she didn't know how to use it, so she just phoned me to say that Ian sounds like the Terry Wogan of medicine. Other than I'm, I'm not Irish. Nor dead. But still, I like that a lot. Yeah, that's cool. Ian Warm and comforting. Less, yes. And then finally, we have Alistair McCulloch, who said that we've got an excellent podcast on delirium and great for teaching and advice to share the link to everybody. Which is really nice because he's uh, the 4AT guy. He is the guy that came at the 4AT. On exactly that, we've got an email from Amy Heskett who has listened to the second episode and... She's actually who likes Betwixt and Between. Oh, is it? It's the same Amy? Oh, brilliant. Good. So she's super involved. Yeah, she's emailed through the website. She's the first person to do that. Good. Congratulations. No, it can be done. And she was agreeing with us about the clunky nature of CAM but wanted to stress that it's really useful in the community geriatric setting both when doing home visits, when you're surrounded by the social history, and you can get a lot of the CAM information by observation. And then also when patients at home, you're reviewing a bit more remotely. Yeah, and she was saying that using the 4AT um, actually seems to put up a bit more of a barrier where actually you've got to rapidly build trust. So that's an interesting take on things. Yeah, that's really good, actually. Yeah, I hadn't thought that. that. Um, And we've had some incorrect guesses to the MD teaser. All wrong. We'll just give you a couple of these. Uh, So a Foley catheter. It is not an electric wheelchair. It's not a cardiac defibrillator. It is not. These are all from Joe Middleton, who is really excited to try and find out what this is. And I feel really bad that he hasn't got it. He says he's rewatched every episode of The Simpsons that features a retirement home. 
Um, I just don't know how he found them all. I don't know how he found but them all. That's good I'm commitment impressed. to the cause. And Shane O'Hanlon says it's important for us to recognise when we get things wrong, even as a consultant. Um, and Much he was wrong on the MDT. <laughs> the MDT podcast. As with each of the episodes, we've gone to one of our MDTs mm-hmm. to ask them what what springs um, to what mind, springs when, to we mind when we think of uh, continents and urinary incontinence. So this is what they said. Hello, I'm Emma, occupational therapist. So the first thing that comes to mind when I talk about urinary incontinence, um, so I think about their overnight needs, what they need during the night, so possibly put in a commode and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'd also look into like risk of falls as well. Um, so obviously if they're quite incontinent, then I, they might be going to the toilet a lot more often. So I'd have to put into place sort of precautions and things. Um, I'd also think about like UTIs as well, so risks of developing UTIs um, and how to prevent those as well. So my name's David, I'm an F2. When I think of urinary incontinence, first thing I think is, is it is it old or is it new? So has, the, has it been documented in the past? Is the GP aware that this patient has urinary incontinence? Um, so don't always assume that it's new and it's a urinary infection. It could be rather long-standing. Um, and what type of urinary incontinence is it? Is it possibly stress incontinence or urgent incontinence? Or, or then is it a actually an infection given all the other things that might indicate it might be an infection where there's any other symptoms bloods so on and then how to manage it based on the course i'm ward manager on a care of the elderly ward urinary incontinence um, comes in all guises especially in care of the elderly patients many patients come in with urinary tract infections so continence once uh, once the infection is treated that the continents may be back to their own baseline. I think there is probably a no overuse of catheters when the patients are admitted to the ward. So it takes us longer to establish what the patient's baseline is. Hi, I'm April, one of the physios working on geriatric wards. So when I think of urinary incontinence, first thing I think about is the pelvic floor and what it's doing and what could be causing the urinary incontinence. If there's anything that we can do in terms of muscle retraining to, to help, more associated with my day-to-day work, I tend to think of how it will affect patients when they're at home. Could it contribute to their falls risk? Could it be the reason that they're rushing to try and get to the toilet? Is it is it something that's going to be a problem with their mobility? It's the main thing I think about. So we did these recordings in a hospital-based MDT, and one of the things that really comes out is it's important for people to know whether this is new or old, and that could be quite challenging in a hospital hospital setting, mm. um, which I think is probably a bit different when it's in the community. And I think it really emphasises the importance yeah. in, in acute care of getting a really good collateral history mm. and sort of knowing as much as you can about your patient and what they were like before this acute illness occurred. Yeah. And I think the other thing that came out is that it's clear, there's clearly a multidisciplinary role here for the management of urinary incontinence. Everyone has very different focuses on completely, completely. what, what it is. So let's start, shall we, talking yeah. through the different types of urinary incontinence. So there are four. The first is stress incontinence. Mm-hmm. The second is urgency incontinence or overactive bladder. And those are the two we hear about the most commonly, the most common, isn't it? Yeah. Thirdly, we've got overflow. Yeah. Um, and lastly, we've got functional, which I'm not a huge fan of that term, but what it essentially means is a problem that is not actually the urogenital tract itself. Yeah. 
and something we'll... else is impacting on that person's ability to maintain continence. Exactly, and we'll come on to that a little bit later on. Okay, so you've got a good analogy, haven't you, to explain yeah. all these different types? So I, I, I think I use analogies a lot when I'm um, talking to people, and so the analogy that I use when I think about incontinence is that of a reservoir and a dam. So the reservoir is mm-hmm. the bladder, yeah. and the dam is all of the muscles and everything in the pelvic floor that keep the urine in the bladder. Okay. So if we go through each of them, in stress incontinence, mm-hmm. what's happening is that the dam is not big enough. So there's been problems or aging with the muscles that form up the pelvic floor. And so whenever somebody coughs or sneezes or puts any pressure on that reservoir, mm-hmm. it pushes up against the dam and goes over the top. Dam isn't strong enough. The dam isn't strong enough. Yeah, exactly. And so people get relatively small amounts of urine often, but with with little precipitation, you know, coughing, okay. sneezing, that sort of thing. The second type is when you have an overactive bladder. So often in people that have overactive bladder, the, the dam is all right. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that the reservoir all of a sudden shrinks in size. So it okay. goes from being, you know, normal size, suddenly contracts down. And really, no matter how big the dam is, it's not going to hold back that sudden torrent of water that's mm-hmm. being pushed against it. The third is overflow incontinence. So that's where the dam is fine. The reservoir is gradually getting bigger, gradually getting bigger. The stream is still filling the reservoir. Then eventually the water just trickles over the top because the reservoir has got over full. Mm. And this is the thing that the men often get with uh, prostatic enlargement, where they get large urinary retention, sometimes up to a litre, sometimes a litre and a Mm. half of urine in their bladder all the time. And then they leak urine just over the top a little bit. So passing urine isn't a sign that they're... Not in retention. No, not at all. It's a yeah. common misconception. Common misconception, yeah. In chronic retention. In, in acute retention, retention, often it presents with the fact that people can't pass mm. urine. But yeah, you're quite right. Chronic retention, people may well have a relatively normal urinary symptom, really. So I'm going to guess that there isn't a functional element to your dam analogy. There isn't, no. But it's okay, because we explained it already, so you already know yep. that. So that's great. So let's start by talking about stress incontinence. I think it's probably the simplest to understand. Yep. So what sort of questions do you ask people when you're so about stress incontinence? I ask people, uh, first of all, whether or not they ever have any accidents or if they ever leak any urine. Mm-hmm. And people don't like talking about it. But once you start talking and once you sort of bring up the subject, people are generally, I find, quite happy to talk about it and are quite thankful, actually, that you've raised it. Yeah, I find that. If you say it. to someone, do you have problems with continence, they'll be like, no. But if you say to them... When you go out, do you need to plan where the toilets are? They're like, yeah. yeah. And do you ever have any accidents? Oh, yeah, I'm wearing a pad now. You know, yeah. and, and suddenly it all comes out and they don't mind talking about it. And they're yeah. quite happy to talk about it once you bring it up in that way. But if you frame it as are you having a problem with continence, quite often they won't report yeah. it. And some people won't, won't think of it as a problem because mm. they think it's sort of an inevitability as they get older. And it's, it's really, really not. Yeah. And is it only 20% of people um, asked directly about continence will actually say it if you frame yes. it in the other ways? Yes. But going back to the specific yes. questions about stress incontinence, you were saying about leaking of urine. Yes. And that's particularly with straining, isn't it? So sneezing, coughing, laughing, things like that. Yep. So the symptoms are really that, experiencing yeah. those yeah. things regularly. And the NICE guidance is quite good on this, isn't it? It is, yeah. For and both we'll, this and the urgent continents, really nice flowcharts that are really easy yes, to follow. and we'll put the link to the flowcharts and to the yeah. guidance in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I'd really recommend going and have a look at those. They're, they're well-written guidelines. Mm. So firstly, we're going to talk about lifestyle measures in yep. our management plan because that's the first thing that we should be looking yep. at. Particularly good for stress incontinence, mm-hmm. but really transcends all forms and I think is a starting point for treatment of all types of, of all, yeah. continents. Yeah. 
So the first thing is uh, weight loss, particularly in people whose BMI is over 30. Mm-hmm. And thinking about stress incontinence, um, that works because you've got less strain on, on your muscles. Yeah, and, and the problem is that the abdominal pressure is greater than the pressure in the pelvic floor. So, so if you reduce the fat in, in the viscera, in the, in the mm-hmm. tummy, that reduces that pressure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Another thing people are quite often asked to do and is, is quite useful is a bladder diary to work out the pattern of things so that both you as the clinician can see what's going on, but also um, the patient themselves can start to link together things yep. that might be contributing. And one of those things is looking at the fluid intake mm-hmm. in that bladder diary mm-hmm. um, and when people are drinking liquid and what they're drinking at the time. Mm. Um, because caffeine really does affect the bladder and it's got a long half-life of about seven to eight hours. The effects of caffeine can hang around for a long time. Mm. So if you're drinking tea and coffee in the late afternoon, the effects of the caffeine are going to hang through right into the middle of the night. Mm. And that and alcohol have have a bit of a diuretic effect, so you're going to need to go to the toilet more. You're increasing the volume uh, going into your reservoir, testing your dam. (laughs) If we go back to that analogy... So really the, the the next step after that and the first thing that we should really be doing for um, stress incontinence is trying to strengthen the pelvic floor. That's the that's the problem. Yep. And that's been shown to be really quite useful in people who can comply with it, hasn't it? Yes, that's really useful. And it's really the first step, I think, in, mm. in trying to manage anyone who's got stress incontinence and particularly useful in the younger patients, but works for older people as well. Yeah, it has to be supervised by a physiotherapist. Yeah, um, who specialise in this, and, and they can actually um, manually measure the, the the strength and grade the strength of the pelvic muscles, um, and then track that over time to see if it is or isn't working, whether people are or are not yes. able to comply. Yes. And I think you have to do it three times a day. I think, as we know, they're all quite easy. You can yes. do them wherever you are. Yeah, and the I think the as you said, the the key is the supervision. And there's a nice paper from Lam et al. back in 2009 that looked at the effects of pelvic floor training Mm -hmm. in exercise groups and also on one-to-one sessions and found that actually there's no difference between the groups. So it's whichever one suits them. Whichever one suits, yeah. And certainly group sessions uh, are much more Mm cost-effective. So from Um, a health perspective... Regular contact that's the key thing. Health economic perspective, that's quite useful. Um, But I guess... Both work, and that's that's quite encouraging yeah, to know, yeah. isn't it? Fantastic. So, next, moving on to overflow, I thought we would do next because it's kind of the opposite to stress. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. that, with stress, it's that the pelvic floor isn't strong enough, and it's it's letting things out when it shouldn't do. Where overflow is kind of the opposite, and typically this is something, as you said, that we see in men who've got prostate enlargement, so um, they get a blockage where the urine should be coming out, so it makes it harder for that yeah. urine yeah. to come out when it usually should, and they usually end up with quite large residual volumes and that's one of the keys isn't it if you put a catheter in or you do a bladder scan you find someone's got a litre in their their bladder it becomes painful at about 500 mils doesn't it so that has been sitting there for a long time yeah if that happens that's a sign that it's a chronic problem not an acute one and again the symptoms really it's difficulty starting to go to the toilet Mm -hmm. and then once the urine starts coming out it's of a very poor stream Mm -hmm. someone that i used to work for I thought you were about to give us a personal analogy. No, 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 no. So, well, it's sort of a personal analogy. Someone that I used to work for used to ask the men whether or not they hit the porcelain like they used to <laughs> and if they could still pee up the wall. Um, and so it's about a pore stream. And then when they finish, mm. there's often this sort of dribbling on of urine afterwards. Mm. And it's normally due to enlargement of the prostate, isn't it? So mm. these people do need looking at, they do need to go and see a urologist and... Or their, their GP. Or their GP. Least, and, yeah, and, yeah and they need to get things sorted out. And there are medications that can help. 
Um, yes, this is one of the areas where medicines can help. So yeah. drugs like tamsulosin, which you will have seen lots of people on. Do you not like tamsulosin? I don't like tamsulosin, no. Do you not? But it works. Yeah, it does, but it causes postural hypertension too. That's true. It does. Yeah. It can cause problems. It is not one of the wonder drugs. But it does relax the muscle in the prostate um, and so it allows uh, you to get better stream and to overcome mm-hmm. that obstruction. And the other drug is finasteride, which takes much longer to start working, about three months, I'd say. Is that right? Yeah, that's and only well. really for people with a uh, slightly raised PSA. Yeah, so that that's an actually, it's a, it actually shrinks the prostate. Yeah. That's a bit of a, a long term. There are some surgical options um, to open up the urethra. Uh, so that's that's available there. So this is one of the areas actually. There's quite a lot of medical intervention, yeah. and um, rather is, than it's also the one area really where catheters have a role in yeah. consonants. Yeah, they yeah. pretty much don't have a role anywhere else in consonants. Okay, so next we're going to talk about urgent consonants, um, and again you've got a, a nice little acronym for this. Yes, unfortunately. So urgent consonants is a problem with the bladder. The bladder is overactive, mm-hmm. and the acronym unfortunately is fun because oh, the symptoms are really not fun but it does help you remember them. So F is for frequency, mm-hmm. so people go to the toilet often. U is for urgency, so that means they can't hold on. And I tend to ask people, if you're doing something, and you know, if you're peeling the potatoes, mm. could you finish when you start to feel the need to go to the loo? Mm-hmm. Would you have to drop everything and go straight away? Yeah. And then the, the N in fun is nocturia. So that means going to the toilet at night, mm-hmm. and we tend to say more than three times during the night. Yeah. But they're really not fun symptoms. And... Oh, having overactive bladder has got a really bad... Yeah, it really affects really, people's quality really affects of life, people. doesn't it? There's this nice reference uh, that we'll put in the show notes from the Australian College of GP, um, which gives a really good overview of the symptoms and the treatments and um, also talks about the impact that it has on people's lives. They're significantly less productive, they have less sexual satisfaction and are more likely to have erectile dysfunction. They have a high rate of depressive symptoms and significantly poorer mental health and... They're getting up all night, poorer quality, quality of sleep, sleep as well. So this yeah. is it's huge. It really, really affects people. And when you talk to people as well, they, they tend to... People are really suffering from this. You know, they can't be that far from a toilet because they, they need to get back and that yeah. really limits what they're able to do with their day. And I think being able to manage someone's overactive bladder is one of the few things that you can do that actually opens up people's world. Yeah. As the, the tendency as we get older is that our world shrinks where we go and everything gets... You know, we could travel less distances mm. and... Allow, allow the limitations to limit yes. your... Yes, and it's one of the things that if you can actually fix the bladder, people can get on a bus again and they can go out, they can get on a train, they Visit can do family. stuff. Yeah. Mm. So again, um, the first step is lifestyle changes. So as we said, the the ones up at the top, losing weight, things like that are, are useful for all different types. Specifically for the uh, urgent continents, avoiding caffeine is really important. Yeah. So tea, coffee... And that's because it's irritating to the bladder lining, so it makes it more irritable, it makes it more overactive, and, and so it's more likely to squeeze and make you incontinent. And then getting just about the right amount of fluid. So if you don't have enough fluid, your urine can be quite concentrated, um, and that can be irritating to the bladder. But conversely, if you drink too much, then you are stretching the bladder more, um, and it's more likely to react with, with spasms. And the the first step really is you do the lifestyle changes, and then look at bladder training, mm-hmm. which is when you, uh, I, I describe it and I sort of say, well, it's like, you know, if you need to go to the toilet every half an hour, you get into a patting and you do that. And then you say, OK, well, let's try and make this 35 minutes mm-hmm. in this hour. And you just gradually stretch it. 
is that the problem with overactive bladder, it's not really well understood, but the problem is it's to do with the, the neurological input, so the nerve input to the bladder, and it kind of gets confused. And so the bladder is sending you signals to say that it's really full when it's not. Mm. So the point is to try and teach it to be to, more full to before it, it reacts And, and like to that. stretch it, exactly. Um, and this is the another group where sometimes medications can help because mm. uh, you can sort of stretch the bladder with medications, but compliance isn't very good. No, um, because they terrible, have quite a lot of side effects. Yeah. Um, so they have anti-muscarinic side effects, which means they cause things like a dry mouth. They cause like cognitive blunting, so people uh, get a bit more confused, bit more can't confused think so clearly. Yeah, they cause constipation. The newer drugs do cause less, mm. but even with the newer drugs, there's only you know maximum fifty percent of people are taking it. Sort of three six months down the line. Crazy, isn't it? It's crazy, yeah. Uh, which just shows it, it's either not working or the side yeah. effects are so yeah. intolerable that they would yeah. rather be incontinent. I do suspect, though, that some people get put on the medications when they don't actually have overactive bladder um, because the patients that do remain on it mm. are the ones that get a perceived benefit from it. Okay. So I think if if they work yeah. and they're working well, patients are more likely to, to remain on them. them. Yeah. And there are new drugs coming out that don't have the anti-muscarinic effects. And that's uh, the the patients that are on them at a year is about twenty to thirty percent, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So, so for for those people, it does seem they do seem to work. Yeah, but yeah. as you say, um, sometimes it's not urgent continence they've been prescribed it for. There's, there's quite a lot of mixed continence yeah, out there, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's more likely that you have some urge and some stress incontinence together yes, that are yes. complicating the picture. And so for those people, having medications may take away some of the urge elements but aren't going to react or aren't going to affect the, the stress element for which no. you need pelvic floor training um, as well as your bladder training for six weeks. So actually you need uh, a combined approach to, to those patients. Yeah, and I think the final final section that we should talk about is... The functional. The functional, concepts. yeah. Now, Joe, you really, really don't like that term, do you? I don't like the term. Joe screws I, her face up every time I say functional. I understand it, but it, it makes it sound like it's not real. And that's... Like, it, it sounds almost too much like fictional, or like yeah, someone's making yeah, it up. Yeah, get that. Um, and so I, that's what I don't like about it. I think it could be misperceived. And yeah. It's something that I came across um, previously with psychiatry, where there's the functional ward... Which to me is like, what? This whole ward of people making things up. And it's not. It's actually the, the advanced dementia ward. It's just a funny term for me. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so what's this? So this is, this is the elderly lady that comes into hospital who's maybe got rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. Her mobility is not good. And she's trying to get to the toilet. She feels the need to go to the toilet. And she can normally hold on. Her, her urogenital tract is, is fine. Mm -hmm. But then she gets to the toilet. And it's much further away, so she's had mm -hmm. to hold on a little bit longer. And then she gets into the toilet, and she's got to work out how to lock the door. Mm -hmm. And we all know with when you arthritic with hands. arthritic hand, and when you're busting for the toilet, the moment it's you shut the, the door, thing. suddenly you you need to go like even faster than you did before. And at this point, she's now got to lift up her petticoat mm -hmm. and hold her skirt up and pull down her tights, and then get on the toilet and. It's not surprising that at somewhere in that process... And she's unsteady from her pneumonia already anyway. Exactly, yeah. She's dehydrated. So it's all of those other things that affect yeah. your mobility, your yeah. cognition, to know that you need to go to the toilet, where it is, recognising a yeah. toilet on Being it. Being able to get out of bed and physically and walk to the toilet. It's isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Do you need someone to come and help you? Yeah. Obviously, this is all quite hospital-based, but the, the principles are the same for, for anyone. For you know, if you're yeah. at home and 
you previously were okay with your three slightly wonky steps up to your bathroom, but now actually your arthritis has got worse or your mobility has dropped down for another reason, then actually that's one of the reasons we talked about CGA right at the beginning the comprehensive geriatric assessment, this is one of those areas where we really want to bring it together because those small gains can help to maintain and, and restore yeah. uh, the functional elements, I say that in inverted commas, yeah. uh, to, to the continence issues that people have and really affecting them. And I think it brings back nicely to the comments at the beginning where we heard from the physiotherapists and occupational therapists about the aspects that aren't really related to the urogenital tract. And it's, it's that importance of a multidisciplinary assessment um, and management in both primary and secondary care. Yeah. So that's the main bulk of today. We have talked about a lot of different things here and the references for all of them for each type of continents. Um, so things like nice guidance and some research papers. As always, they'll be in our show notes available on our website, www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. And just to recap, so we've covered the four types of urinary incontinence. Which were? Stress incontinence. Next. Your urgent, urgent continence, <laughs> Next. overflow incontinence, Next. and the dreaded functional incontinence. Just checking he learned something. And um, we've talked about the limitations of pharmacological treatments, mm-hmm. which are, Joe? They're not very well tolerated, quite often prescribed for the wrong reasons. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, if you can take them, great. But if not, and it's only very useful for a small number of people, so don't rely on them. Yep, good, good. And um, we've talked about some of the strategies that we can practically employ, mm-hmm. such as reducing caffeine intake. Uh, doing a bladder diary to look at the amount of mm-hmm. uh, liquid that people are, are drinking. Utilising physiotherapy um, services for pelvic floor training. The, the nurses on the ward can start things like the bladder training if you've got someone in for a bit longer or in the community. Yeah. Um, and the the role of OTs in helping people with those functional elements and yeah, um, getting to the toilet. If you want to hear more about any of those things or you'd like us to make a, an episode about any of those things, please get in touch. And you can contact us via Twitter, which is at MDT underscore podcast. Uh, we have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. And the website is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. And you can email us through that. You can email us through that. Yep. The MDT podcast. So next we are going to do the MD teaser where we provide each other with clues for a piece of equipment that is commonly used in geriatric care. I'm going to go first this week. We are at one all. So first clue, this is a piece of machinery that is essential in evaluating a type of urinary continence. Right. Okay. Is this... I'm really worried it's too easy. ...a Eurodynamics machine? No, it's not. Sorry. It's not. I was going to do the, uh, the family fortunes. <clears throat> okay. Second, it is a very simple piece of machinery to use. Aha. Uh-huh. Is this, Joe? Is this that thing that you can never find on a ward when you want it? Is this a bladder scanner? Oh, yes. <sighs> Fantastic. Don't like you. Go on. Uh, right, turn. so it's your turn. I've written yours down this week, so let me have a look. Right, so the first clue, Joe, is this is on a theme actually this week. So the first clue is is very simple. This is white. And it's rubbish. <laughs> but it's on the theme of continent. Yes, yeah, okay. and it's white. Is it a toilet? It's not. Okay. It's closed, but it's not quite. This is around five to six inches tall. Is it a squatty potty? 
It's not, no. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, check it out. It's a really good video on YouTube. Yeah. It's actually for faecal incontinence rather than urinary. But anyway, With a very catchy theme tune. Yes. Uh, so the third clue, Joe, is this is roughly oval in shape and is made from plastic. Is it a commode? It's not, no. Okay. This, uh, the right, the so next clue mm-hmm. is... Uh, maybe this is too hard now. So this is given to a patient after an, a functional assessment, usually by an occupational therapist, and is used in their bathroom. A grab rail? No. I was going to say, that's not oval. <laughs> it's not oval, no. <laughs> I feel like it's a commode, but you said no to that. Yeah, it's not, it's not really a commode. Okay, and the final clue then is this sits upon the normal toilet seat. That is a commode. What is it called then? It's not. It's What's a seat it raise. It's a toilet seat raise. Okay, that's. I, I would call that a commode. It's not a commode. A commode is a toilet <laughs> on wheels that you move okay, around. Okay, yeah, fair enough. But the top of it is the same. No. Okay, no. Fine, no. Two, one to All me. Right. right. So it's now your turn. So we have a have one for you. It's been building up over the last few weeks, and so this is the next clue in the series. And what we want is what object are we talking about for this clue? When used in nursing homes with elderly patients with dementia, this item has been found to have a long-term effect on depression and agitation and might be a suitable non-pharmacological treatment for some of the neuropsychiatric symptoms. Mm. So quite a long clue. I was going to say, it's a very long clue. So if you want to win the coveted MDT mug, then please do get in touch with us. Uh, You can do that via Twitter at MDT underscore podcast by emailing us through our website www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. And that's T each time, T-E-A, like a cup of. And the MDT will reconvene in two weeks time with a new episode. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.